Amen. We, uh, we have a lot to say amen for, a lot to give thanks for, and I, I, I'm, I'm actually thankful for just the way we're taking time this month during the service uh, to just highlight different elements of who God is and what He's done. So if you recall a couple weeks back, uh, we had uh, a time to think on uh, who God is and, uh, and just to m- pray on, in light of that, and, and uh, John Hozak came up and shared his thoughts on that, and then today... Thanking God for salvation, and, and Claudia, thank you again for sharing what you shared, and Ben for, for praying. Um, but it, we're doing this on purpose. This is a month of, you know, our, we focus on Thanksgiving, but let's face it, people, we gotta, we gotta fight for it, right? We've gotta direct our minds toward it. We've gotta think on these things, because we're not gonna fall into that mindset automatically, and frankly, we miss out on all that we have in Christ and all there is to give thanks for. And so, uh, so I would just encourage you each week as we do that, as, the, as another theme is going to come along, maybe take note of that somewhere. Think on it uh, through this week. It would be good for you to, to t- stop. And I'm not sure if you journal or not. Maybe you don't journal. Maybe you just kind of use a pad or, or your phone or something. But take some bulleted notes of going, well, Lord, what am I thanking you for? Um, in light of salvation this week even. Take time to do that. And, uh, and let's, let's make sure we harness our minds, our thoughts, and, and our focus in these days when everything else is trying to pull us all other kinds of directions right now. Uh, there's a, a film called Tree of Life, and it's a film about a, a 1950s Texas family and their relationships, their growing pains, uh, the way that they kind of engage in common life struggles. And their oldest uh, son of three, Jack, uh, is conflicted between his, his mom's loving, graceful ways and then the way his dad is kind of strict and authoritarian. Uh, mom, mom wants her boys to see the world as a place of wonder. And uh, the dad, in, in, in contrast, wants to prepare his boys for a cruel and corrupt world. And, and there's one scene in particular where, where Jack, the eldest son, is, is showing his relationship with God. Uh, he's kneeling beside his bed. He's praying. And his prayers kind of begin with, you know, those sort of, those simple, safe, acceptable kinds of prayers, right? So he prays, God, help me not to sass my dad. Help me not to get dogs in fights. Help me to be thankful for everything I've got. But then suddenly he breaks away from that standard prayer and something happens. And in a moment of of raw honesty, he whispers something of a deep longing. And he whispers, God, where do you live? And then he breaks away and he goes back kind of to his standard prayers, you know. He, 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 he goes back to, God, help me not to tell lies, and, and on and on he goes. And then the film kind of shifts to this wonderful panoramic view. It kind of, kind of pans back, shows a park, shows kids playing. And, and we, we find that uh, Jack is back now, and his voice is overdubbed in sort of an a, a honest, raw, awe-filled wonder-filled conversation with God as, again, he whispers the deepest longings of his heart. Are you watching me, God? God, I want to know what you are. Lord, I want to see what you see. And, and, and it's a tangible description, really, of someone going from sort of a formal, empty, shallow kind of religion into someone who has a living relationship with the living God. And in that moment, he's, God, where do you live? There's a sense there where he's, he's saying, Lord, wherever that is, I want to live there. Wherever you are, I want to be there. Whatever you see, I want to see. 
It's really a beautiful description of what it means to abide, live in, remain in Jesus. And that's what the Apostle John is calling us to today as we look at John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 3. John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 3. John has just warned his uh, readers about Antichrist, the fact that Antichrist is coming in the end times, but there are also little Antichrists that have shown up to oppose God, to oppose what he has called us to as his people, uh, to bring false teaching and deception and distraction uh, to God's people. And so he's warned them about that, and now he, he comes into a new section. And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would take these words penned by your spirit through the apostle John and that you would take them and apply them to our lives, to our hearts. We ask that Uh, Where we need conviction, Lord, that you would bring that. We ask that where we need help and encouragement, that you would bring that. Uh, We pray, Lord, for those here that are thinking about you, perhaps considering the things of you for the first time, Lord. We ask that you would meet them exactly where they are, that they would even this day turn to you. But Lord, we, we ask most of all that we wouldn't just go through an empty routine of sort of sitting through a church service, but instead that we would in fact engage with you, that we would do the work of being on the edge of our seats to listen to you, to your voice as your word is proclaimed. And we ask that you would use it to do mighty things, not only in us, but also through us as we go out into the world that you've called us to serve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So that, that main phrase that John gives us there is to ab- abide, abide. And, and really, this is an idea of resting and remaining in, living in, dwelling in. And so from that key first initial phrase there in verse 28, we would see that we're, we're, this, he's calling us to live in and live out our connection with Christ. We need to live in and live out our connection with Christ. That's what, that's what abiding means. That's what living means. You know, you, when you go to your house, that's where you live, right? The place you live, wherever that is, apartment, house, you name it. But you come in the door, that's where you exist. That's where you come in. That's where you leave from. And, and uh, here, this idea of abiding is to remain. So it's not simply where you exist, but it's also deliberately being at home in something. Jesus uses that same phrase in John 15 when he describes the relationship between the branch and the vine. And what does he say? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, stay connected to me, 
and you'll live. There's a vibrancy to that. And if you're separated from the vine, the separated branch just withers up and dies. So we're to live in and live out our connection with Christ. And, uh, but then the question comes, well, why? You know, why should I do that? That sounds great. That's a kind of a little phrase, but what would motivate me or cause me to want to do that? And, and John gives us several, several reasons for that. Uh, the first we find is this, because you've received a new birth. That's why. Look at the end of verse 29. Notice, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Okay, hi. Practicing righteousness means I've been born of God, okay? But look at the first part of verse 29. If you know that he's righteous, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Notice he's saying here, you need to know something. You need to know a couple things. First of all, he's the righteous one. That's who he is. Uh, Righteousness here means conformity to a standard. In other words, all of God's actions, uh, all of God's actions are right. They are good because of his nature. He he can't go against himself. They're not right because he put a standard there and then he conforms to it. No, the standard itself comes from who God is. His very person. And everything he does is in perfect harmony with his nature. That's who God is. And so in verse 29, he's saying, if you know he is righteous, then you also know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. You can kind of see the argument here. Again, it's back to that familial similarity. I mean, if you're, if you're a young person right now here, I just want you to look at your parents if they're with you. Look at them right now. Look at them. Look at them. I mean, let's face it. You know, get this. Whether you like it or not, that's you in like 20 years. <laughs> Don't take it personally. No, but but it's true. There is a sense in which we resemble our parents. Like it or not. Now, now parents, you think of something right now. How often, when you were younger, you said, I am never, ever going to say, do, whatever. And then how often have you caught yourself going, oh, no. (laughs) I am the embodiment of mom or dad. For better or for worse. Like parents, like kids, right? That's, and, and there's several, you know, old kind of adages that go along with that. But here what John is saying is, hey, if you're born of God, you are going to practice, and that word for practice is ongoing, living, ongoing, doing. You are going to practice righteousness. Why? Because that's who God is. You're his child, like father, like child. That's what's going to happen. And, and very, very likely, uh, you know, the, the false teachers of that time, the pre-Gnostics, whoever they were, they were kind of coming along saying, um, you know what, you need to know. And there might even be some sort of way this knowledge shows who you are. And John's going on saying, hey, there is knowledge involved, but guess what? The knowledge results in a different way of walking. And if the walk isn't changed, if there's no change whatsoever, then we've got to ask the question, what's happened? Is, 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 is this a genuine, real connection with God or not? But this picture of 
of birth. You know, you're like your birth parent. It's not just simply practice righteousness so you can be like him. Notice he, he says, first off, he is righteous. That's where it starts. It starts off with the righteousness of God. And so when you practice what he is and who he is and the way he, he carries himself, you are now living out and embodying his righteousness that you've received from him. And so you're showing that you're born of him. You're, you're not doing this to obtain birth from him. Notice, no, it's the reverse. You've been born of him, and as a result, you do this. I mean, let's face it. How, how much did you do to obtain your natural birth? I mean, let's face it. We don't say congrats to the baby for being born, do we? I mean, they wouldn't appreciate it much at the time, probably anyway. But, you know... Let's face it, who do we say congrats to? The mom and the dad. Well, let's face it, we say congrats to the mom. Hello. I mean, look, amen, right? See, yes. I mean, come on, dad. We know who did the heavy lifting here, right? Please, I mean, you gotta be careful. But we, but we say congratulations to the parents. Why is that? Well, because the kid did not do anything to bring this about. And it, you can take no more credit for your spiritual birth than you can take for your physical birth. And so instead, as a result of your physical birth, you live. And, and in this way, as you are born of God, you live in a new way. And so some would come along and say, oh, there you are. You're talking about grace again. So that must mean obedience is no longer important anymore then, obviously. Right? It's, just, it's because of who you are. You've been born. So who cares about obedience? Well, what's the Bible's response to that? You know, the Bible would say, yeah, you're right. It's, I guess it's not important. It's absolutely critical. <laughs> it's absolutely necessary. It's vitally important. Um, growing obedience is not the cause of the salvation. It can never cause salvation. But the principle would be this. Obedience to Christ, though it can't cause salvation, it is the consequence of salvation, and it is the confirmation of salvation. And that's important for us to see. You abide in him by practicing righteousness. That's what John's telling us here. And there's an amazing result that comes from this. Look at the end of verse 28. When you abide in him in this way, notice you can have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's quite a picture. Jesus is coming back. We're told in, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that it's going to be a sudden return. Bam, he's coming. He's here. Could happen anytime. Now, I've said this before, and I thought, what if it really happens before I finish this sentence? It could happen before I finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be wild? Just the rapture right there. Boom. Gone. You know? Anyway, um, it's happening. And, and so now the question becomes, okay, when that happens, where are you going to be at? And certainly, if you're not in Christ, this is a call to you to turn to him, to believe, to trust in him. To receive the righteousness that, that, that is his because, frankly, your righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags before a holy, holy, holy God. We need the righteousness that comes from Christ as a gift if we're ever to hope to stand before him on that day. But if you are in him, the Apostle John here is actually making another distinction. It's possible for you to be a believer, to be in him, and yet you're not a, in, in, in a walking in him, in this way of practicing righteousness. And as such, when he returns, it's possible that you will have this sense of, oh no. 
You know, th- think of, think of uh, the, the various ways in which all of us struggle with indwelling sin. Uh, Jesus describes it in several places. I think Sermon on the Mount is still a really good place to go. So anger, Jesus tells us, is murder of the heart. So just imagine you're in the middle of one of your I can't believe I didn't get what I want moments. And maybe that's coming out verbally right at that time and then Jesus shows up. Is that really where you want to be when he shows up? Jesus says uh, if you look upon someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. You want to be in that zone, in that place when Jesus shows up? There's, there's, a, there's an awareness here that he, he gives us of saying, no, you don't want to have that moment be that time when you're going, oh. Now, it doesn't mean the person's not saved. We're, we're told here uh, very clearly that, uh, you know, even in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We're told in chapter 2 that he is the propitiation for our sins. Uh, we're, we're told that that's not a matter of, of if you're not in the um, perfect sinless state, in your practice when he returns that you're lost. No, but it does mean in that moment there is shame. That's what he says here. To shame, the word shame means to shrink back. And, and so there's kind of a, a little wordplay happening uh, in, in, in the Greek here because the word for confidence and the word for coming, they sound similar to the ear. And that's really no accident because the return of Jesus for us as believers, it ought to bring hope, it ought to bring delight, it ought to bring confidence. But let me ask you a question. How do you feel right now when we even talk about these things? Are you sitting there going, yes, I can't wait? Or is it more of a, eh, you can wait a little bit. I got stuff I want to do. It seems like our attitude or our demeanor toward anticipating Jesus' is coming says a lot about where our hearts are really at in terms of abiding in him or not. So we need to live out this connection that we have with Christ. And it's not only because you've received a new birth, but also because you've received a new name. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. Uh, John just described it for us earlier, so I feel like I can just kind of skip this section a little bit. But, but what's he told us? God's love is such that he's actually given us a new name. Um, this, is, this is a moment here where the Apostle John is sort of just caught up in what God has done. Uh, there is a way in which he's breaking into song, practically. He's erupting into praise. This first word, even in, in verse 1, he says, see it. Uh, the idea is, is, is the herald who's in the middle of town, he's the town crier, he stands up on the box, and he cries out to everybody who's there, everyone, look, behold, take notice of this. Stop in your tracks and look. Because this is astounding. Look at what? Look at this kind of love. It's a great love. 
Uh, the word megos is there. So it's massive. It's this massive love. But he also uses a phrase, how great a love. And that, that phrase, how, it's a very interesting thing. If you'd lived in uh, the first century, let's say you lived in a, a Greek town, maybe it's a seaport town, and you'd be going around your, you know, about your business kind of thing, and all of a sudden there'd be a rustle amongst the people down at the docks, and, and word would be spreading that there's a ship that's coming into port. And, and people would move down to the docks, and they'd look over the, you know, to see this ship maybe coming in, and, and, and they'd look at the sail configuration, and they could tell, okay, by the sail configuration, by the flags, is it our country or is it another country? And then you would hear people maybe asking in Greek, uh, potapen? which literally means, of what country? What new people are coming to visit? What, what new things are they bringing? What, what goods are they bringing to trade that we've never seen before? What things are they bringing that we can learn from? What's going on? If that's the word, how? From what country? From where? When, when Jesus was on uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, you recall that massive storm, and Jesus is sleeping, remember that? And everyone's like, ah! You know, that, that sort of, there was, it's a very strange way the story lays out, right? Because there's a great storm, and then there's a great calm, right? Because Jesus says, essentially whispers to the sea, be still. The, the way a parent would calm a, a riled up child, you know, he says to this roaring sea, be still. And then it goes just smooth as glass. And after the great storm and the great calm, then the disciples had a great fear. <laughs> then they were afraid. And, and, and then they ask in that, that awe-filled sort of like, what just happened? They ask, who is this guy? Same word. Of what nature is this guy? What, where is he from? What is going on? That's what John is using here to describe this love. So how great or of what kind of love is this? And certainly this is a different kind of love. Why? Because it comes down from our perfect heavenly Father. It's not like our love. Our love so often is sort of like this sort of reciprocal love. I'll love you if you love me. You fulfill my needs. I'll think about fulfilling some of your needs maybe if it's convenient. If you hurt me, it's over. I'm done. How many children grow up in homes where love essentially from mom or dad is if you perform well I will love you and if you don't well you better start how often in in different even business settings or or perhaps in in terms of a craft or or a trade you know you're you're constantly working and and earning because you want recognition acceptance etc all that stuff translates oftentimes into how we see God We actually think, yes, if I perform well, if I have a week whereby I am carrying out the spiritual disciplines in a way without fail, then God's loving me. And if I don't, he's not. But here we see, no, look at how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. He has just taken this love. It's it's lavishing something out, pouring it out. Just without, like with a reckless abandon. It's like what I do when I make waffles, people. I take vanilla and I just pour it in there. Bam! I just gave you my secret ingredient. 
Try it. You'll like it. Trust me. But that's the idea. You just, you just take it and you pour this out. And he's just lavishing this love out on us. And, and here's the amazing thing. How does this look? That we should be called children of God. That's a picture of adoption. So he uses the analogy of by birth earlier. Now he's going into the realm of adoption. Gary Berg is a uh, professor at Wheaton College. And he tells the story of the day that he and his wife adopted their little girl. And he says he'll never forget it. When they were in the courtroom, and this little girl that they loved, she, they initiated it, of course. They loved her. They chose her. They saw her. They wanted her to be their own. And they're in the courtroom. He says, I'll never forget the moment the, the gavel fell and the judge changed her name. And that name will never again be what it was. And that's what God does with his children. The gavel has fallen. He has changed your name. Notice that you would be called a child of God. Don't miss the next phrase because it's not just an empty declaration. Look at what happens. And such we are. It's real. It's true. It's full. What does that mean? That means no matter what the problems are that you're facing today, at this very moment, brother or sister, you need to know you are a child of God. And the news gets even better than that because it's not simply something that happened at one point in time. It's true then and it carries through to now. God's never going to take the gavel that fell that changed your name. He's never going to bring the gavel back up or undo that. You will never be disowned by God as a member of his family. Why? Because you've come to him in Christ. That's a stunning thing. And we need to hold on to that. Because all those other kinds of loves filter in sometimes and we start actually believing that somehow this love from the Father that he's bestowed is love. We forget that no, this love is a great love. It's a megos love. And more than that, it's a what kind of, from what country kind of love. It's other than the love that we experience regularly. And it's been given to us in Christ. The apostle goes on to say that the world has no grasp of this. The world does not get this. Look at the second portion of verse 1. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it does not know him. Really, the world looks at what we're doing right now and they're like, what a massive waste of time. What are you doing? Folks, there is football on right now. There's other stuff you could be doing. What a waste. They don't get it. They can't get it. This passage tells us why they can't get it. Because they 
have not been born of him. I'd encourage you this week to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul describes this in, at length uh, when he just says this, now we have received not a spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. See what happens? The spirit, Holy Spirit, invades our life, turns on the lights, illuminates the truth of God's word so we can see it, and then we can tell. Then we can know. He goes on to say, things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but, contrast, those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then he goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So we shouldn't be surprised at the reaction of others. The Bible tells us that's going to be the case. And we certainly don't need to go through all the lengths and and, and, and efforts that many go through in order to be accepted by the world. I can't believe how often there are people who, who uh, claim the name of Christ, who follow Jesus, but they also somehow want to make sure that people really see them in a certain light from the world's perspective. There's this desire for that. I think we see it personally too. I don't know if you've experienced that. I, I have. So uh, sometimes it's in the workplace. There's people that you're like, oh yeah, I'd like to connect with them. I'd like to, you know, they seem like a pretty neat person. And then somehow there's a roadblock of some kind. You know, maybe it's something along the lines of, hey, check out that girl who works in the office. And you're like, no. Oh, come on. Oh, you're a prude. Oh, what's, please. You can look, but don't touch. The, The reality is we live according to a different set of values. And so our desire to be accepted, our desire to be included uh, is something that we, we need to understand. Look, the world doesn't get it. They're not supposed to. Until the Spirit of God invades, until he turns on the lights, until they come to that place of, of being able to receive what God has given us in himself because there's new life put inside of them. And we get to be a part of that. Isn't that exciting? We get to be a part of it. We get, to be, we, get, we get to be friends with people, and we should love this in every sphere that we're in. We get to rub shoulders with, be with, enjoy, cultivate friendships with people who don't get us at all. We are odd to them. I, I still remember that when, before, I, before I came to Christ. So I, I was in uh, my latter high school years, and I knew several people who were Christians. And I, you know what I really thought? I just thought, these people are really strange, but they're sweet. They're just odd, but they're nice. It's okay, you know? I had no idea that God put them in my life for the purpose of helping me to see that I was blind. And he did in his time. And that's the call each of us has. But let's remember, look, the world isn't going to know us. The world isn't going to receive us. The world isn't going to accept us. The world isn't going to affirm us. And that's okay. You know why? Because they also rejected him. And we're in him. And it's a privilege. You remember when the, when the apostles were, were flogged and beaten by the, by the Jewish officials for preaching the name of Jesus? And they, the, the passage tells us in Acts, what? They considered it a privilege. 
to be able to suffer for his name. Now, the amount of suffering we go through, it varies from person to person. It varies from place to place. But are we engaging with the world in that way, with love, with grace, with truth, with a desire to have an impact on the, on the people around us? Because let's face it, the person in the cubicle next to you, they're not there by accident. God put them there. The person who's teaching the class next to your class or, or, or the person that you're in line next to at Safeway, they're not there by accident. God put them there. Are we aware of the opportunities? Are we eager to be used by God in this way? to demonstrate his great love. We need to live out our connection with Christ, not only because we've received a new birth and not only because we've received a new name, but lastly, because we've also received a new hope. And we find that in the verse 2 and verse 3 of, of chapter 3. Look at what he says, beloved, again, that term of affection, Now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We don't know what it's going to be like. Can you imagine it? What would it be like to be free of sin? I don't know either. You're all looking at me like, beats me. Well, don't look at me because I don't know either. Amazing to think about that, to consider it. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are in the process of being saved, or we have been saved from sin's power, actually. We have the spirit within us to fight against indwelling sin, so we're in an already not yet place when it comes to that. But when that time comes, we will be saved from sin's presence. It'll be gone. Yes. What a day. And, and look how the apostle describes it. John says, we know that when he appears, there it is, that's that same word for the sudden appearing. That idea again of Jesus is coming back any moment. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So this idea of, of hope, it's awaiting Christ's arrival. There's an anticipation there's a desire to see this. And, and it's a, a thing where when Jesus appears, it's as if when we behold him, when we see him, his nature, his person, his purity, his, his everything about him is so going to just saturate us that in that moment, we're just going to be completely purified and like him. It's interesting because this is a... Uh, We shall be like him. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a passive verb. So it's meaning we're not going to be cooperating in this endeavor <laughs> at all. God's going to do it when we see him. And, uh, and, and the idea of being like him, there, there's, a, there's two ways to describe that, or two terms for that in Greek. One would describe number, size, or weight, you know, exact likeness. Another word describes a similarity and characteristic. That's what's being used here. So in other words, there's, there's a sense in which we're never going to be like Jesus because Jesus is divine. Jesus is God in human flesh. 
Uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. So we're, we're never going to be like him in terms of being equal to him as God. We don't become little gods. But we will be like him in terms of spiritual unity and in terms of righteousness and in terms of purity. What do we find here? We find that, you know what? It's a beautiful thing to think about. God saved us for, for more reasons than simply just to keep us out of hell, which is a big one. But he saved us to cause us to be made like Christ. He saved us so that we would be conformed to his image. That's why you were built. Think about this. God made us to be his image bearers. You are God's representation here in his creation. And so everything you've been designed for, everything that he's calling you to be, everything he's built you for in Jesus, you become that fully. Why? Because it glorifies him. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And so when God rescues, God causes us to be rescued from sin, death, and hell, but he also causes us to become conformed to the image of his son because that's what he came to do. So the question is, are you anticipating it? You know, you, you can learn a lot about a person and their relationship to something by how they wait for it. I mean, for example, a sold-out concert, you've got tickets. Or a dental appointment, and you haven't been in a while. Or Bart. So what do you got? A sold-out concert, but you've got tickets. What's that? That's excitement, right? You're waiting with excitement. That's how you wait for that. It's a dental appointment, and you haven't been in a while. What are you waiting with? You're waiting with dread. Let's just be honest. You are waiting with dread. And if it's BART, and it's your daily commute, what are you waiting with? <laughs> Indifference. But now, think about this. We're called to wait for the return of Jesus. How are you waiting? Excitement? Dread? Indifference? Which is it? The way you wait for his return says everything about your relationship with him. fascinating to see also that this waiting in anticipation has a massive effect on our lives. Look at verse 3. Because hope is something that not only awaits Christ's arrival, but hope is also something that purifies our lives today. He says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So this, this is a, a way in which there's a looking ahead, there's an anticipation, there's a desire for his return, 
But there's also a way in which hope is fixed on something. Hope is set on something, and it's Christ and the fact that he's coming back soon. There's a, an amazing thing to think about this because he's talking about it in terms of the antidote, really, to indwelling sin. And I think that's a hard thing for us to see sometimes. He's now talking about practical righteousness. So there's our positional righteousness, which God purchases, uh, Jesus has paid the price for, and it's secure and all believers have it. That's positional righteousness. There's also practical righteousness. That is something that comes out of that positional righteousness. And practical righteousness is the way I live on a daily basis. And we do participate in that. This is a, 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 a symptom of, of genuine faith. It's a demonstration of, of really being a follower of Jesus. It's important. But it's interesting how here John clarifies what really is the antidote to indwelling sin. And I think most of us would say, well, it's practical righteousness. And it's like, well, no, practical righteousness is important, but that's not the antidote he lists here. And maybe there's others. You know, some might say, well, it's purity is the antidote to sin. And of course, again, this is vital. We've talked about that already. But really, it's the result. Purity is the result. That way you know the antidote actually worked. But it's not the antidote itself. What is the antidote to indwelling sin? And, and, and what we find is, certainly John's been describing a lot of things here, but what's clear is he's been describing what it means to be related to Jesus, what it means to look ahead at his coming, and now we find that the antidote to indwelling sin is hope. And that can be startling. Wait, that's it? That's the antidote to indwelling sin? Yeah, it is right here. I'm saying it's the only one. But here, John is clearly bringing this forward. Are you fighting indwelling sin? Are you feeling defeated? Are, are, are you in a place where, where you're, you're, you're sensing, I just, I'm getting dragged around by this thing. Could it be it's because your hope is not in the right place? Where's your hope fixed? You know, right now, COVID's causing Everybody to, as one person kind of told me, to reorganize the deck of life. COVID's done that, hasn't it? But however it's being reorganized and whatever we're doing and however we're responding to things and, and, and all those elements of it, are we doing right now what we're doing in light of his return? Or are we doing what we're doing, responding the way we're responding, changing things the way we're changing things or whatever it would be, in light of, or based upon more temporary, fleeting, maybe little aspirations. How are we responding? Hope fixed in the right place has a direct result in allowing us to purify ourselves. Now, by the way, that, that phrase, verse 3, that is us participating in it. This, the, so purity, again, is not the thing where you're going to just kind of lay there and go, that's right, I just need to be purified. Hold on one second. Let me just go lay out under the sun lamp so it purifies me and I'll, come, I'll be right back. That's not how it works. No, instead, it's active. We are engaged in that. We actually, by the Spirit's power, engage in ways to kill sin, to mortify sin, to walk in a different way. But it's hope fixed in the right place that does that. Um, I think of the time uh, when I was proposing to Janet. And uh, I'll be honest here now. Uh, I was a guy growing up as a young, a young guy. So in my uh, 
mid-20s, early 20s. There's one thing, and I think most guys are like this. Guys don't like rejection. If you're a guy here, can you, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know what I'm saying, right? Amen, guys don't like rejection. You don't, you, don't, you don't go out of your way. You don't ask a girl to an event because you want to be rejected. That is not like a goal. Like, hey, I hope I asked three and they all three say no before the fourth one says yes. Like, that's not on your list. You know, it's not. Um, but Janet and I, we had been, um, you know, dating for a while, and I had a pretty good idea. I had a, I had a, a hope. And my hope was that she would say yes. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. I married up. Okay, we know this. I've told you this before. Um, so my hope, my anticipation, my recognition of what would happen gave me what I needed in the moment to, to ask her, to drop the rock, so to speak, right? To have the, you know, will you say yes? And this analogy breaks down all over the place, but the point is hope affects what we do. Gives courage, gives backbone, gives us the ability to move forward in a much deeper, fuller, grander way. When we have our hope fixed on Jesus' return, which is way, way more solid than the kind of hope that we typically have. You know, hope, hope to us is sort of a, boy, ask, you know, I, I aspire to this, I long for this, I hope for this. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. When the Bible describes hope, that is a sure thing. This is like you can bank on this. It's done. It's as if it's already happened. That's how sure it is. And when we anticipate Christ's return, the way it affects us now, if our hope is really fixed there, is ongoing, growing purity. So let's learn to live in and live out our connection with Christ. Why? Because we've received a new birth, we've received a new name, and we've received a new hope. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that uh, you would continue to work these things in us, that we would live differently, that you would be glorified. Again, Lord, for anyone who's here who has not come to that place of trusting in you, we would ask that maybe they're online uh, joining us now, maybe they're outside, but wherever they are, we would pray that in this moment they would turn to you, trust in you, ask for forgiveness from you, admit that they're a sinner, and receive the eternal life. All of us, Lord, all of us, everyone in this room are like sheep who've gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way, but you have caused our twistedness, our sin, to fall on Jesus. We thank you for our risen King. We thank you that he's coming again soon. And in his mighty name, we praise you now. Amen. Amen.